Looking for a conference that engages the arts, gender, race, and all that great intersectionality stuff? Well, look no further. Theo Poetics is coming to you here in March of 2018. Y'all, y'all gotta come play a part of this. I'm gonna be there. A lot of great folks are gonna be there. And this is part of a new movement of better understanding what a conference can do and be through the arts. March 2018. Click on the link in the show notes and click on the link here on our website at whitehodgepodcast.com. Theopoetics is a proud sponsor here of the podcast show Profane Faith. This is your boy Dan White Hodge. I'm going to see you there, right? Aye. Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back, welcome back everyone to Profane Faith. Boy, we got ourselves a hot one this week. Well, um, unless you were living under a rock or uh, in a corner somewhere, this last week uh, was the special election in Alabama with uh, Roy Moore. And uh, yo, this was just crazy. I mean... The amount of folks who actually thought, you know, that this dude should win and by the amount that he lost by, yo, that deserves a conversation. So what I did is I gathered some good friends of mine. Um, Ironically, I did not meet them at AAR. (laughs) But uh, Irene Cho, uh, Tamisha, and um, Latina, these are three women who really have a solid perspective on life, God, theology, race, all that great intersectionality stuff. And I really wanted to get him on the show to talk a little bit about what it really means to look at this thing through a woman's lens. Uh, You know, and in particular, I wanted to get three women of color on here uh, on the show and talk about this because I just felt like there are so many layers to Roy Moore and, and what's happening with that. There's so many layers that connect back to uh, Christian theology here in the United States. There's so many layers that connect back to um, just women being looked at as just objects, as meat. Um, and it's a lot of stuff that we've talked about here, you know, on this show and, and on, on, on this podcast about how women have been looked over or they've been engaged, have been, uh, you know, groped and all that. So I needed to have this conversation. And so I'm going to keep this introduction real brief because there's some good stuff that they are going into. And again, just a lot of layers as it pertains to this issue of sexism, but bigger, bigger than that, how sexism and patriarchy have infiltrated their way, particularly into ministry, seminary, um, and places like that, which we think, right, on, on, a, on a general scale, we want to think that these places are, like, um, protected, right? Like, oh, this is, you know, this is God's work. And the reality of it is, is that, sure, God may be in it, 
But at the end of the day, you know, hey, it's still run by people. There are still social constructs in it. And we have to look at that. We have to engage these things head on. And, you know, I'm not dumb enough to think that sexism and racism is going to end in my lifetime. But I would hope, I would hope that we can move the barometer just a little bit and begin to tip the scales towards women. And I think, you know, I think this, these scandals with men coming out and well, women basically coming out and telling, telling us that they've been sexually assaulted by these men. Russell Simmons is part of that. Of course, we know about Bill Cosby. Of course, we know about um, Harvey Weinstein. This is great. I mean, this is a great time. At the same time, this is just a start. And for those of you still amazed and like wondering like, wow, I can't believe this. I mean, imagine what it's like to be a woman. Imagine the amount of women that are that are dealing with stuff like this that in reality can't even say anything because they, you know, is as a woman, you're either a nut or a slut when you get on trial. In any trial, whether it's in the court of law, whether it's in the trial of the public, you're either crazy or you hoe. And those are two places that gosh dogs for real so I, I know a lot of women who just be like yeah of course i was sexually assaulted but i couldn't say anything i could i wasn't going to do anything and so imagine all the women who out there who are still silent about this stuff imagine the, the the scandals that are happening right now you know some of these women who you know who talked about stuff that happened to them you know 30 and 40 years ago right this is crazy it's crazy stuff so I wanted to have this conversation on profane faith. It's an ongoing conversation. Um, and so I wanted to get three great women uh, who um, have, again, great perspectives on this. And so this is the conversation we had. And so um, I'll post their links and their material down in the show notes. And for those of you listening, uh, again, you heard the little promo at the beginning, but I just want to reemphasize, man, Theopoetics going to be off the chain. I'm hoping to have uh, myself out there along with some, a couple other folks out there as well uh, in Boston. More information, like I said, is coming up, but I definitely wanted to get that on your map if you're listening to the show. So as always, without any further ado, uh, here's the conversation. Um, thank you so much for listening. Again, whitehodgepodcast.com. We're on iTunes. I look forward to hearing what you think about this particular conversation. Here we go. Welcome back, y'all, to Profane Faith. This is your boy, Dan White Hodge, and today I have some amazing women, women of God, women of consciousness up in here to discuss this whole mess of Roy Moore and evangelicals and the funk we find ourselves in today. But before we get into that, let me have everyone introduce themselves. Let me start with Tamisha Tyler, soon to be Dr. Tamisha Tyler. You, you want to tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, hi. Yes, yeah, soon to be doctor in about three years. I keep saying it uh, as much as I can. My name is Misha Tyler. I'm a second year PhD student studying theology and culture at Fulbright Seminary in Pasadena, California. I um, am looking to study, and, and Dan, I don't know if you knew this, uh, the work of Octavia Butler. Yes. So that's going to be my focus. When I'm not in school, I, you know, it's a PhD program, so you don't really have a life. But I try to. Um, I'm also a poet, so I write poetry. You could check it out on my website on the uh, show notes. And I'm also a co-host of a podcast called Why We're Friends. Yes. Uh, yes. Friend Alex and I really just kind of explore difficult conversations across difference. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. 
All right. All right. Excellent. We're good. We're Excellent. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you here. Latina? Hey, uh, my name is Latina Williams. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, currently, uh, well, I should say, historically, I have been a pastor and a campus minister, um, but just basic troublemaker wherever I go. Right now, uh, I'm making trouble as a vocational advisor at Fuller. That's my day job. My night job is that I do whatever I want. I do whatever I like, whether it is helping out with Black Lives Matter in Pasadena, whether it is um, writing on my blog, whether it is um, speaking truth, um, not only to power, but to friends who need to be encouraged. And so that's kind of what I do. Um, and I just really am into enjoying life, caring for yourself and living unbothered. Uh, I think that can keep people busy for a lifetime as you serve God, as you run towards or away. And so um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I'm also a master's student at Fuller Theological Seminary. So nice. Uh, that's me. That's me. That's what's up. No, that's what's up. All right. Dr. Reverend Irene Cho. All these titles that I get honorarily because I haven't finished my PhD program either. <laughs> Uh, my name is Irene, and I work at the Fuller Youth Institute. Um, in April, I will have been there for 10 years, which just blows my wow. mind. Um, I head the Certificate in Urban Youth Ministry program, which will be transitioning into, um, actually, we're going through some transition in our program to provide more resources for urban youth leaders, um, which we're really excited about to see where God's shifting and moving Um all of that. And basically what we do at the Fuller Youth Institute, we take academic research and we translate it into practical resources for leaders, kids, and families. So I'm asking lots of questions um, as we're going through the transitions um, in this time, in this day, in this period of chaos that's happening, what urban leaders need and what urban students need to kind of maneuver and get through this. So I'm really excited about what's going to be coming down the pipeline. My personal life, um, I'm married and my husband is doing some really awesome things with education. And so we're trying to figure out how we can help bring in the kingdom of God and join with where God is already moving and working and just changing the world so that all of this kind of crap that's happening will stop um, in some way, shape or form. And in my spare time right now, I am basically a uh, full-time caretaker on top of my full-time job um, and being a full-time wife, uh, taking care of my parents right now. So that's a lot of taking up my time and my sanity. Other than that, I do enjoy reading and hanging out with friends and watching lots of movies. So There you go. No, that's what's up. Well, let's just dive right into this thing. Um, what are, I mean... When you first heard of Roy Moore, and maybe we can you can even back up to the November election of 2016 um, in regards to just 45 getting elected and just the madness that has ensued. You know, we're into this a year now. Well, I mean, I guess unofficially a year. I mean, I guess he was sworn in in, in January. But um, uh, where, where are y'all at with this and just with the whole Roy Moore thing? And I definitely want to talk a little bit about there's a there's a movement now to redefine what evangelicalism is and you know this you know progressive evangelicals and you know what what does that look like does that even define any of us maybe you want to let me start let me start with this where do y'all define yourselves on the christian spectrum anybody can take that christian i don't um 
So I didn't know much about denominations or evangelicalism until I got to Fuller. And I was like, so wait, what do they do? They, what? <laughs> they, and I remember a com- distinctly remember a conversation with a friend after they explained to me about denominations and evangelicalism. And I remember saying to her, you know, I'm from Long Beach and that just sounds like a bunch of gangs. Like a bunch of people fighting over some kind of theological territory that they don't own. And colors, they got their own little. Like it just sounded like gang activity to me. Hmm. Hmm. Um, being said, and I'm not, you know, dissing denominations or anything like that, but that being said, this whole notion of evangelicalism and this reclaiming of this word, I'm a little perplexed. I've never identified myself as an evangelical. And I've been extremely perplexed, especially in the last year or so, especially with the election, as to why people are making this word the hill that they want to die on. And why is it about this reclaiming this word that I'm I'm still trying to figure out how it has more importance than, you know, the gospel, Christ, how it has become this political monster which people feel like they need on their side in order to feel i don't know moral or christian i'm really perplexed and i Mm. remember telling a class at an evangelical seminary so i don't know how that how well this went over but um i think it was 1968 um around the time that that time magazine came out about god is dead Mm -hmm. there was a theologian i can't remember his name that said that the god during that time that died was white. And I'm wondering if the next iteration of God that needs to die is evangelical. Mm. This, this, <laughs> think of this, this political yes. kind of association that everybody's like, well, we're not exactly like them, but we're kind of like these evangelicals. We're going to add a word here to make us feel a little better. Um, especially when people want to claim the word without claiming the history of what that word has done. Mm-hmm. Um, just another iteration of maybe fundamentalism, um, maybe the ways in which we've abused um, our religion and gained religious power for the abuse and the marginalization of other people. Um, I don't know. New to the denomination evangelical game. So okay. out here. No, that's what's up. What's up? Irene, what do you think? Um, I'm also in the same boat with Tamisha. Um, being in ministry for 25 years now. Um mm. I, I, you know, I was converted um, when I was nine and then stopped going to church for when my parents got divorced and didn't come back to even having an interaction or relationship with God other than being super angry at him for this family situation I had. But I grew up a Pentecostal and then I went to Biola and Talbot and then I threw that also in Mount Fuller. And so... I mean, I, I'm really grateful for all of the different kind of denominations or outlooks or interpretations and groups that I got to have glimpses in. And so, I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of weird and mosaic unicorny, like a quilt all patched up together where I get to pick and choose. Um, the other thing that I agree with Tamisha that I feel with her is, you know, I, I had, to, I when I first got called to ministry in the 12th grade, I 
was like, I don't want to get ordained. I had to work through my own misogyny and my own patriarchy to like mm-hmm. dismantle that within myself because I was like, well, as a woman, like I don't want to be a senior leader, like youth ministry do or die. So I don't need to. And now I don't want to get ordained because people are asking me left and right. Oh, don't you want to be a reverend? And I'm like, I don't want to commit. I don't want to commit to any kind of denomination. And if I get ordained, I'm going to have to be loyal to that denomination. So like, hmm. Mm-mm. I want to be this free range horse that's just around and I get to, you know, just do that. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I just, I'm with Tamisha. Like, I think around 2001 is when I really started my journey of breaking down and dismantling all these systems and structures that were the rules and were like what you need to check mark in order to define that you're a Christian. Um, and, what's been really encouraging for me is how I've just met people one by one groups of people. And it's just this momentum where I'm like, I'm not the only crazy one who is fed up with these checkmark lists, who's fed up with these boundaries. Who's like, I don't fit into any of these squares and that's okay because I know, I know where God lies in that. I know where, who Jesus is in my life. I know the relationship I have. I know how, the theology I have within who Jesus is and how he wants us to minister to the misfits and the poor and the oppressed and those ostracized and marginalized in our society. Um, and the church, you know, I mean, I'm an, I'm an eighties baby and I grew up with the mega church phenomenon. And that is not like, Jesus don't give a shit that you got a bowling alley in your church. Like <laughs> that's, you know, where it's at. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. So in this whole thing of like, also, the other thing is the media and the world, if we, you know, I mean, scripture does say it, like at the end of it, if we're really being subversive, the world isn't going to understand and is going to want to de- want us to be defined in that's in a way that is explainable and understandable. And my issue is why does the church try to fit that mold? Like we're subversive. We go against what the world is saying. We're going against this element. And so the fact that we are now associated with a political group or associated with a certain type of viewpoint, you know, babies and gays, you know, all of that stuff. Like I, that's everything that the church isn't supposed to be. Hmm. All right. All right. This is good. All right, Latina, what you got? Yeah. I want to respond a little bit to Irene as I, as I talk, I think, (laughs) you know, in truth that we are subversive, we're just subversive in the wrong direction these days. We're subversive against truth. We're subversive against justice. Um, and that's not the kind of like subversive we are called to be, right? I never really labeled myself as an evangelical. I feel like almost like 007 who goes into all of these organizations and has to figure out how much resonance I have with an organization, how long I'm supposed to be there, what I'm supposed to do when I get there. So I grew up going to, I would usually say more going like not going down the street from the church than anything else, right? We were the kind of Baptist folks that usually showed up on, you know, Christmas, Mother Day, Easter, maybe even Father's Day, and, you know, got baptized while I was 12, sang the choir a little bit, but that didn't really mean too much. When I went off to school, had this moment of trying to reflect and say, what does it mean for me to be who I am? Be young, on my way into school, knowing that I'm going to change and not knowing who I'm going to change into. So like, what are my anchors? And um, so I actually started this spiritual journey before I went to the University of Wisconsin Cross, before I met InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, um, and before like any of that went down. So 
Uh, it was only after um, having gone to anniversary and meeting Jesus and understanding that there was more to life uh, and more to salvation and more to faith that I actually became a Christian. I labeled myself Baptist, uh, historically Baptist, uh, Christian, and then I got hooked up into non-denominational circles, whether you call them charismatic or Pentecostal, and those usually split along lines of race. And they usually are split along lines of race, right? Um, and so when I look at what's happening with evangelicalism and how evangelical comes from most supposed to mean the good news or the gospel, I don't see a lot of good news these days, right? And so I'm looking at people try to reclaim what they forfeit, right? When you have a truth that is just not good news to people and somehow you try to modify, adapt and change it so that it is, maybe you ought to just go back to the drawing board hmm. or maybe you ought to own your history in such a way that you can look and you can say, that was some really shitty stuff that we did, right? Or that was really evil. Uh, when I look at even what people want in the way of conversion and how individualistic it is and how it lacks a community uh, response and how um, it's not really centered on justice, like you could live a good Christian and a good evangelical life and never actually be more than a blessing to someone. Hmm. That disturbs me, right? Yeah. Uh, and so there's this sort of notion of white individualism evangelicalism that people don't want to reckon with, which makes it hard to go back and speak of history yeah. because of the indictment that it will have. And it should have, right? So I've never called myself an evangelical. I found myself at some evangelical circles. I work for some evangelical organizations. I've attended some evangelical institutions, um, but I, I'm not running around here waving the flag of I'm a black evangelical. Uh, I don't know how to reconcile the two when one won't be honest to be in a dialogue with the other. Mm. So I guess that's where I land. Okay. Well, this is good. This is this is a good, great conversation. So, all right. So let me take it here. So I, what I want to do is I want to play a clip for y'all from from your boy. I know you guys all listen to um, Sean Hannity and uh, on Fox News is like I know it's bookmarked. I and I saw Irene retweeting that somewhere. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was in the trash but nonetheless i wanted to play this clip for you in regards to roy moore and i'd love to get your reactions disgusting beyond shameful and in the case of judge moore if it's true he should step aside and leave the senate race everyone would agree everybody a 32 year old man pursuing a 14 year old girl is disgusting that is something we should all agree on this should transcend politics however everyone also has the right to defend their name our goal on this show is always to find the truth. Here are the allegations tonight. A woman is alleging to the Washington Post that back in 1979, when she was 14 years old, she had a sexual encounter, actually two of them, with then 32-year-old Roy Moore. On one occasion, the woman alleges that Moore kissed her. And during another, she says that Moore allegedly, inappropriately touched her and guided her hand to touch him. Now, although she claimed no other sexual conduct took place, she described the incident to the Washington Post by stating, quote, well, I wanted it over with. I wanted out. Just get this over with. Whatever this is, just get it over. Now, the woman then says that she asked Moore to take her home, which he did. Three other women are also accusing Moore of sexual misconduct back to the 1970s while they were teenagers ranging in age from 16 to 18 years old. The women are alleging that Moore pursued romantic relationships with them and one allegation involved kissing. 
Judge Moore tonight is adamantly denying these allegations against him. He told the Washington Post, quote, these allegations are completely false and they are a desperate political attack by the National Democratic Party and the Washington Post on this campaign. In a separate statement, Moore said the Washington Post has already endorsed the judge's opponent and for months they have engaged in systematic campaign in a systematic campaign to distort the truth about the judge's record and career and derail his campaign. In fact, just two days ago, the Foundation for Moral Law sent a retraction demand to the Post for the false stories they wrote about the judge's work and compensation. But apparently there is no end to what the Post will allege and continues. This garbage is the very definition of fake news and intentional defamation. All right. So, <laughs> some thoughts on this. Because this is a strong argument on the, on the right um, about defamation, fake news. Who wants to jump on that first? Okay, I, I want to address that issue. Okay, but I I had a really in, like intense conversation this whole weekend. I have a friend who is, is was staying with me, um, and her friend circle. They actually are dealing with um, a sexual assault incident that we had to go, we had to break down a lot because it wasn't a clear, like Brock Turner, you know, violation, no kind of thing. And what, what Sean Hannity read, it, it just triggered my thought of the connection that continually ties. There was one tweet I had read, um, or I think I might've even retweeted about the patriarchy that women to be um, victims of older men. Um, and, you know, we, we prepare them. And so this whole, Disney, rom-com, idealistic, like, be my savior, come rescue me. I mean, we tell women from the age of 10 that they're going to have to be married, and evangelicals, like, all over that, you know, a woman isn't a woman until she's completely married, etc. So Sean Hannity, when he was reading about the 14-year-old girl who said, I just want this to get over with, Mm -hmm. um, both scenarios that I was dealing with and processing with my friend was that and we were talking about the our, the, the misogyny within women and within the patriarchy within ourselves because for me um the senior pastor who raped me it was that Whoa. same situation you know I said no I said I don't want to do this he had power over me um he was somebody that I looked to to replace my father um and with all of my daddy issues addressed in there he caught me in a sexual interaction with my boyfriend at that time so I was ashamed and he used that against me and so I I did not because of the patriarchal systems in my own mind and how I grew up did not feel that I could push up against, you know, this, this man who was approaching me. And so I shut down and I thought, let's just get this over with. Um, and I, in my mental mode escaped. Right. So like this situation type of thing is, is this is the issue I have with evangelicals where we need to talk about all the history and all the understanding of like how we create in women in young girls, this mode of like, I need to submit, which is bullshit. That's not what submission is. I need to be compliant. I need to show that I'm a good little Christian girl. I need to show that, you know, I'm respecting my elders. I need to show all of that 
that's ingrained. That's the poisonous, you know, ingratiation in our, in, in what we deem as Christian culture. And so like, I want to address that Mm. on top of the fact of like the defamation and all these things, but like the scenarios that are coming forward in situations like Roy Moore, the complexity of it is that it makes it complicated because he had this relationship. And so in his delusional mind, I'm sure Roy Moore, that's why he claims that there's no wrongdoing because in his delusional mind, he, he has every right. You know, there was this whole article on op-ed piece that I had posted. It was amazing on and believe and are told that they are allowed to pursue, that they are being manly, that they are being masculine, that they are taking charge, that they're being godly because they do these things, you know, and that the woman on her side, even though she doesn't want to, must be something wrong with me. Let me just deal with this and go through with it, you know? And so we need to address that issue, that poisonous fake theology that's, you know, inbreded in evangelicalism. Yeah. Ooh, that's, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I definitely want to talk a little bit about that patriarchal because this stuff is so intertwined with, even a quote unquote biblical view of how women should behave around men and you know what the theology is around that. But Tamisha, Latina, what what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so uh, a little bit of the audio cut out, but I um, but I, I think I got it. <laughs> um, this <laughs> yeah. issue of fake news, right? If fake news is meant to be a kind of propaganda that spreads deliberate misinformation. Hopefully that's not me. Hopefully that's not me, Rainy. Um, is it me? No, we're good. Okay, great. Okay. Um, so if fake news is meant to be a kind of propaganda that deliberately spreads misinformation, right? If it's written with the intent to mislead or to damage a person or entity or whatever, to grab attention and to get headlines. So that's the first place where I start is like with this whole assertion of fake news. It is not propaganda when someone has been um, sexually assaulted and they begin to speak about it. That's the first thing, right? Yeah. Um, I struggle with the fact that the immediate knee-jerk reaction is, oh, we are just doing that to shut this person down for a future, right? Why don't people pause, right? And just take a moment to reflect. Why don't people actually take a moment to believe that, um, that women have been abused, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's part of me that wonders why we jump to, right? Knows the answer and still yet wonders why we jump to um, defending or saying someone should have the opportunity to defend their good name. Two things I'll say. A, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Um, and cross-eyed, <laughs> cross-eyed people see straight all day long, right? So this is not a complicated matter, right? It's illegal. It's immoral. It is punishable by law. And at the point at which the criminal the criminal act was perpetuated, that is when they forfeit their good name, right? That yeah. is when they forfeit their integrity. That is when they forfeit maybe not the right to defend um, themselves in their name, but the right to have people believe them as they uh, as they defend themselves. And so when I hear this conversation about like fake news and we give more credit to the intention of someone as opposed to the effect of their action, that's just problematic. All day long, when we were kids, we learned, hey, if you bump somebody, you didn't mean to, you just apologize. 
right? Yeah. You deal directly with what the actual person has experienced at your hands, whether you intended it or not. So there's this part of me that realizes that we have lost our damn minds these days, right? We want to double down on whoever is on our team, uh, right? We want to be tribal. We want to be powerful instead of actually right? And so there's this part of me that's like, okay, is that good news? Is that evangelical? And these days, more and more, that is evangelical. When you tell me that a 16-year-old, right, was um, textbook, the textbook definition of sexual harassment and assault, right? Even all those years ago, I just still feel like it's in play. Even if the statute of limitations has expired, that is still who that man is. And that is, that like, that needs to be contended with. Um, so I don't buy it, Sean Hannity, with your, you know, with your life. <laughs> I just don't buy it. I don't buy that it's fake news, right? And that, that is who he is because he didn't process it. Like, mm-hmm. you have to process it and admit it, like you're saying, and own it in order to do the work. And then we can talk about transformation, reconciliation. And even if you don't... Um, even if you don't process it, even if you don't admit it, there is the law that stands outside of us to say, here is what happens when you go too far. Here is the penalty, right? And I, crazy part, legal systems effed up, right? So it's like, you can't even depend on the things that are meant to be pillars, or maybe in the Old Testament, like Ebenezer stones, like things that should uphold the standards and the boundaries to let you know when you've transgressed and what the penalty is. Hmm. So... Yeah, I'm not, I can't even, I can't even mess with um, people calling stuff fake news and giving the wrong people credit for their intentions and not believing the right people. Um, Sean Hannity is making his money. So get your coin, brother. You know, his paper is up these days. Um, I I really do wish the damn scandal would come out about him. I really do wish it would. Um, I know there'll be somebody else to fill his, you know, to fill his shoes. Um, But I just feel like, can somebody turn his mic off? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mercy. All right. I mean, there's so much on that. But Tamisha, what what you got on this? Well, I, one, agree with my two sisters. But I think what's interesting about this is we're talking about, you know, Hannity, he's doing all these things, you know, oh, this allegedly, oh, this whole discourse about fake news and propaganda and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, great. That's fine. It is with the people with the people who then justify and create these narratives that uplift and sustain people like Roy Moore. Like you can go on Twitter and you can see, well, I I mean, you'll have like spectrum things, things all the way on the end where I would rather vote for a pedophile than a Democrat, or I would rather do this. Like I will justify something that's alleged because, you know, we don't have the full story, even though we all know things like keywords like full story, Uh, the whole truth, those are very privileged uh, political terms. It takes a lot of privilege to be able to wait for the full to be able to wait for the whole truth. There are people whose lives depend on you taking a leap of faith and making a stance and intervention before you have the whole story. But that's a whole other thing. I think what's what's interesting is the way that people and the public like sustain and maintains this disease discourse. Mm. And the way that they justify, oh, well, you know, since it's alleged or, oh, well, since it's this, you know, he does do good. It's, it's the, the distorted justification 
that helps to maintain whatever political or um, evangelical kind of world or ideas that they have in their head. Like they're very insecure. And so these pillars that they have created has to be sustained with what we think is just radical bullshit in order for them to justify why this is the line I'm supposed to go. This is the way I'm supposed to think. And so you'll have people say some wild, crazy stuff, and you're just like, how did you get to that? How did you get to justifying Roy Moore's actions, not pausing to listen to these women, and then going and using your political power to try to put him in office? Like, how did you get to that point that, you know, because um, the guy says, oh, this is something that we should all agree is wrong. Well, yeah, on paper, it's something we should all agree is wrong, but find loopholes to justify to say, oh, well, that is in general is wrong. But in this case, with this person, it's fake news. But in this case, with this powerful person that we think represents all of who we are, it's fake news. So the sake that if that person goes down, it's a crumbling of their whole ideas and ideology. And so I think it's interesting to see how um, this kind of stepping out into this kind of crazy territory just to uphold whatever ideals that they have just is a signifier of just how insecure troubling that they actually are. Yeah. I love, I love that. That, and we talk about that at FYI all the time. Like the, I was just thinking while you were talking to Misha, how, you know, okay, like, let's, let's talk about Bill Cosby, right? I mean, so, okay, go back, going back, like, privilege means that you've never experienced dystopian chaos and disturbance, right? Like, there is a secure level. And so to know that their leadership is not meeting up, like the, the loyalty and the upholding, like you're saying, the insecurity of like, being unable to shift a mental mode of like being able to see the truth when you are in a space that's like it's it's the thing like i've moved how many times i don't even know right so i there like my items that are in my life they don't have a hold on me because you you're just in a mode of like shifting and transitioning all the time versus somebody who's lived in a house for 40 years you've just planted yourself in that space and so there's there's a the loss of needing to shift out of that is is psychologically and emotionally gigantic, right? But like I was thinking through as we I, constantly, I've been dealing with this, like with the Bill Cosby incident, the the respect I had for the black community. I mean, this is somebody who was like the papa figure, hero man who like changed and shifted black representation in Hollywood and dialogue and all of these things. And to, I mean, and there was the initial like, please, no, not Bill Cosby, like, don't touch him. Like he's, he is untouchable. But like as story after story, there wasn't this double, triple, quadruple, quintuple downing on like, no, I'm going to be blindly loyal to this man. There was this ability to shift and like find and see the truth. You know what I mean? This like blind loyalty that exists within this weird Christian white evangelical society in which it's not about Jesus and truth. It's about this stability, this square. I mean, that's privilege right there. Like we can't shake this because then what does that mean about us? 
what does that represent internally about our group and our systems and all of these things? So the blind loyalty to Misha that you were talking about, that you know what I mean? Like they can't face that because it questions then who they are, that insecurity you're talking about. Hmm. Man. Well, all right. So let's take it a step further then. Let's because I think Roy Moore is a symptom in, in, in the folks around him. Right. I mean, I think it's a symptom of an ongoing problem with Christianity, particularly white evangelical conservative Christianity that has dominated the U.S. landscape for quite some time. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Daniel Camacho. Um, he just wrote an article in The Guardian talking about, uh, it was just published today, um, about how this is, you know, that the, the, the days are essentially numbered for white conservative evangelicalism and that, you know, this is, that, that, that the cracks are really starting to show up. I'm curious, where do y'all see some of these these theological? It's particularly as women. Where do y'all see some of these these theological cracks? These narratives, you know, because there is still a lot of patriarchy that exists within our churches, and and especially within you know churches of color. And so, I always say, whatever conversation we're having on race, you know, you gotta like even subtract almost a half a century of that because that's where gender is. And I'm just curious, like. This whole Me Too campaign, this whole understanding of like what sexual harassment looks like, I don't think enough men understand like what is what is the daily fight as a woman that that goes on. I, I don't know if that, that makes sense, but I'll put it out there. I think it does. I think it's huh. It's I have so many so many thoughts. Um, it's really interesting because when you think about the way in which right, evangelical conservative like just those disclaimers to sit like that we have to add on and tacked on to situate i know showing cracks and things like that I, I think yeah i think that's true i i don't know if it will so much disappear as it will morph into something else sense of quote-unquote hmm. radicalized multiculturalism that doesn't actually get down to the nitty-gritty of what diversity truly is maybe that's this sense of like certain representation of, like we've seen this we've seen this in like the fundamentalists and then how it shifts now to this we're not them we're the and then now all of a sudden these cracks are showing and now it's like we're not them we're these so history has shown it's really interesting it's shown both religiously as it relates to christianity in america and also racially as we look at aspects of how um notions of slavery have evolved and not necessarily have incarceration jim crow all these different things so cracks are showing yes Will it just all of a sudden disappear? I, I pray so, but this beast is not a beast that will go lightly. And I think that our use of saying it's going to end, it's going to end, it's going to end is actually blinding us to the ways in which it's going to evolve mm. and become something else. And okay. we're not going to see that that's something else until those cracks and that's something else show. So that's the first thing. I think when it comes to patriarchy and the way in which we uphold women, I find it it's really interesting. We've gotten to this um, kind of notion of using our gender diversity in the same way we use our racial diversity. Like okay. you know, having women being ordained or we pride ourselves in having a majority of women who are like, and it's this sense of like, because I added a woman, now it's like I have some political gain or something that I can show. It's a selling point for my institution or my campaign or my this or my that and it's helpful but i'm i'm just 
people being so surprised and celebrating firsts or celebrating things that should already be. I think we should celebrate those things. I think it's important to say, yes, this woman is here. Yes, this person is here. But I think like for the fact that we're still going and we have this extra point to let you know that there are, you know, we have majority of women here and we support women. We just want like that place. I'm torn because yes, we should support women. Yes, we should celebrate that. But it should be a no brainer at this point. Hmm. It should be a thing that we just do. Now, I'm not shocked or surprised in time and the way things are evolving and the way that some of these notions that we have thought we've historically um, gotten over, like I said before, have just morphed and evolved. But it's like, really now? Really? That's still a selling point of yours? That should just be a given because you don't put, we have this many white males in our institution or organization. You don't, you don't do any of that, but it's like, oh, we have women. We're progressive. Yay. (laughs) I'm torn. I'm torn with celebrating, but also with, we should be passive. Mm. I just want to start asking them like, so do you want a cookie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's exactly right. Um, If I can jump in. Yes, please. I mean, I think I'm like, yes, we are seeing cracks and fissures and crumbling foundations that will certainly result in the like the death and danger of as many people who are innocent as they are guilty. So Mm. there's this part of like there is this major thing. And it has me wondering, should men even be pastors? Oh, come on. Come on. Women have been accused, right, for as long as we have had the world and scriptures of being temptresses. Mm -hmm. Um, We live under a constant cloud of suspicion. I did a lot of fundraising when I worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Okay. And I can tell you the number of open office doors I encountered as if I was there to tempt this pastor or to take advantage of him. And so when I look at how patriarchy has worked itself into a moment of me sharing, here is ministry, would your church like to pray and can your church partner? But I've had to do so under the suspicion that I am there uh, to sexually tempt this pastor, right? It's men that are at the center of each of these scandals, right? Um, I'm not saying that there probably aren't some women that are out there abusing some folks, right? But I look and I go, if we really want to deal with is the reality of what people who do not have integrity, who continue to sexually assault people are up to, then I think we have to begin to ask that question. And it seems far reaching and it may even seem like fanciful to even ask that question. But I think Act 6 gives us a model for when people cannot be trusted. And the only reasonable response is is either that you hand over your power or is that you share power in such a cataclysmic way that it actually protects and provides for the needs of everyone who is waiting to be helped. And so I think it's time for quite a few men to step down or to only say yes to leadership positions when it will be a shared leadership position and not a shared leadership position that's honorific right? Um, Or that gives the appearance of leadership being shared and power being shared when it's actually real. 
so hmm. I'm at this point, I'm reflecting and I'm saying, you know, if the scriptures talk about leadership and you're supposed to be the head of your household and your household is supposed to be in order, um, clearly there are things that are disordered, right? And I am thinking of the church particularly, right? Um, but then because we're crossing over into political spheres and I start asking the same questions, right? Do we need to, in how we elect people, think about a different structure that is actually protective uh, for the people that it's meant to provide for? Wow. Yeah. And then I'll expand, Latina, and connect even what you said earlier about individualism um, and community and how in in our Western American culture, we don't have that. And so right now, you know, becoming a pastor, speaker, writer, it's yes. a it's a career, Tell you know it. what I mean? And so the fact that we've capitalized this profession in a way that, you know, well, men are gonna react and say, well, I need to pay, I need to pay the bills and this is how I pay the bills. So, and I want a platform, I want to have my fame out there. I wanna be known, I wanna have, you know, all these things. So we need to call that out. Um, oh, hi, Emily. We need to call that out and how even that system needs to shift because we're telling these men, okay, well, you need to step down and share the platform. And they're going to come back with this whole idea or this whole argument that, that they're just doing their calling. They're just doing their thing. But it connects back to what you called out earlier. If we are talking about this being a kingdom work, a, a communal work, you know, something to which isn't about career trajectory, because what is, what is that? Like, that makes zero sense if we're talking about kingdom service, like, so I don't give a, I don't give a shit that your career trajectory you have an agenda for what needs to happen because this is greater than that, and that means women leadership needs to come in because this is a tribal thing. This is a thing where we do it together. We do this service together. But you know we need to call that out. So I want to just tie that with what you said earlier, and how it's all interrelated because it's the systems that we we have. Well, I'm, I mean, as we're talking about this and as we're talking about just the processes, because I, I do believe that when we look at this and, and when I talk about this, I'm talking about like, you know, Roy Moore, you know, let's, I wanted to add in maybe just some of the intersections of this, you know, um, here, I'm pulling up the, the stats as we speak right now. Um, and, you know, how many black women voted for, um, you know, Roy Moore. But then there's uh, Bree Newsom t tweeted out some an interesting uh, tweet. But let, let me at least read the, the the stat first. And let me see. I got it here. My phone is real slow. Um, black women, 98 percent, 17 percent of voters. Um, black men, 93 percent. The Washington Post today states, well, like, well, maybe it wasn't them. Maybe white evangelicals saved um, you know, Roy Moore from getting in there. And so they ran a whole um, essay on that about how, you know, white evangelicals actually came back and they saved it, you know, because black women didn't really make up all that. So I'd be curious as we throw in now the intersectional lens to all of this, what that means, what that may mean. Want to talk about some, can we talk about some fake news today, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is always what happens, right? Is when you have the ability to, to redirect a narrative, 
in such a way that it supports your perspective and your angle. You have the power and you have the influence. People need to learn how to call bullshit on things, right? <laughs> right. I don't care what population you have, right? If we would have listened to black women from day one, maybe even from the inception of this nation, we wouldn't be where we are. Even just black women, but black men who showed up to the polls who voted um, not for Roy Moore, right? So there's this part of me that's like, ah, you know, even if I'm cross-eyed, I'm still going to see straight on this one, right? <laughs> right. Um, so you, you can't convince me. You can't you can't piss on my shoes and tell me it's raining and think I'm going to be down with that, right? And that's exactly where I feel like, okay, some precipitation falling, but this is not from the sky. And I'm not, you know, I'm not singing in the rain on this one. So I guess... <laughs> All that said, to say I just disagree. I wholeheartedly disagree. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think I'm because grateful for facts. Some, yeah, right. Come on here. Come on like, through. Come on, sit. You got it. Well, well, you know, just I gotta read the article, but so I could like guffaw for the rest of the day. Just facts. Tamisha, what you think? I think from not reading the article and just hearing what you said that somebody tried to sell uh, bullshit by putting an organic label on it, but you know. It's still bullshit. I think that <laughs> it's interesting how people always want to shift the credit when they realize that they were that the people that are privileged or should be in power were on the wrong side of history. And they'll say, well, you know, so and so that like shifting up the rhetoric is to trying to save the pillars of the house when everything is not working and the house is falling down and you're saying, Well, you know, but it's still, you know, it's the building so-and-so and it's you know a national treasure but it's a national treasure that's falling a fucking part let it go <laughs> and i think it's interesting like I, just the whole notion of like the world again black women black women black women tried to save the world in november black women have saved the world again today and um there were a couple of tweets that i saw that i reposted that i was like black women save black women Hmm. Y'all hmm. just got caught up in the benefit of what that means. Black women saved black women and black people and people of color. And by a result, you're ignorant ass. Stop trying to take credit. Stop trying to paint black women as these superheroes because all it does is it paints you as the victim that needs to be saved. Wow. That's the only reason you want black women to be superheroes is because you want to be the helpless people that need to be saved that can't save yourselves. I'm not your savior. I'm not your superhero. I'm trying to live. Kill me. So, and I think that that's the important part. Um, one of the things we always talk about, I have a friend Alexander and he came up with this, you know, additional chapter of Proverbs, um, Proverbs 32. And he says, if you have a black woman on your team, that's Proverbs 32. It's in the Bible. It's canonized. Additional is, but will she? Hmm. On this election. But will she? Black woman said, uh-uh, America, y'all not trying to kill me again. Political power that I'm going to save myself. And y'all may benefit from that. And that's cool, but I'm going to save me. I'm going to take a step and love myself, love my country. I'm not taking this bullshit anymore. I'm going to go to the polls and I'm going to operate my political power. And I'm sick and tired of America to take black women, women of color, people of color, and the action of trying to save themselves and trying to say, oh, look what they did for the country of America. 
why don't you start helping and stop trying to kill us? Hmm. Why don't you start helping and let us get the leadership positions in the spaces that we deserve? Why don't you let us start living in the houses that we built and the businesses that we built on our backs? Why don't you go ahead and hand over some of that power and some of that money and some of that prestige that you so hold on to instead of thanking us with the tweets saying, thank you for helping me stay in my prison. <laughs> Unacceptable. <laughs> Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, here, let me, and, and Latina, I know I, I can see it. Say, I just wanted to, because this is similar to what Brie Newsom was, had tweeted out on the 13th at like 7, 12 a.m. She said, quote, the narrative about black voters saving Alabama would imply that the majority of white voters, the majority of people in the state, wanted to be saved from war. They didn't. Black voters protected themselves. It is problematic to frame Alabama election results as black people saving Alabama when they were actually protecting themselves by pushing back against systemic racism within their state. Black people saved Alabama. Who did they save Alabama from? Who was putting Alabama in harm's way that it needed to be saved and why? The image of the magical Negro or the mammy figure who rescues white people in their time of distress is a very old racist trope that celebrates black people for being able to serve whiteness from its self-destructed impulses. The central focus of this racist trope is still whiteness and the idea that black people are made noble in sacrificing themselves for the benefit of a sympathetic white figure. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Where's the offering? Now, the praise dance yeah. is coming into the election that needs to be done. And th but that's just the straight up truth, you know. And so shout out to Brie Newsom for bringing clarity and putting words around the reality of what continues to happen. We're not even allowed to have a narrative that's not attached to whiteness, right? We're not even allowed to have a narrative that is full of agency that allows us to be centered on what it means to live or even to pursue happiness uh, apart from whiteness. And so shout out to Brie Newsom for bringing fire and crisping up, burning up everybody who had gotten it the wrong way, right? So, I mean, I don't have anything more to say. I retweeted that because Brie was on point. So thank well, whoever Brie people is, bless her and bless everybody, right? I do think sometimes in the pursuit of justice, we forget how interconnected and intertwined we are, right? So when someone does see straight and when someone does vote rightly, this redemptive expression in the world it's it feels like these days it's actually impossible just to stay centered on the people who have done right and been right and created room for more rightness to come forward um, but I, I think it's absolutely true i think black most white people don't conceive of black people outside of this utilitarian purpose and that is very american and also very evangelical um so shout out to brie for for bringing the truth and for staying on point yeah, and reminding us what really happened in Alabama. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. What do you think, Irene? No, I'm, I'm, I don't have anything to add except yes. <laughs> I mean, you know what Latina just said. It, it just, it's everything in that privilege right there, right? There's no narrative outside of their own centeredness and how everything, how everything looks from that viewpoint um and, and i you know i understand that it's it's human nature um uh, 
it's egocentric. It, it's part of that. And yet the, the way the culture has been shaped, I mean, that's the thing that we talk about all the time for women of color. Like we're always in the mode of intersectionality because that's the life that we have to live at all moments of the day. Like I am always thinking about where I stand and then in comparison or in connection to, you know, another gender or person or, you know, all of these things. And so like, it's just second nature for us to be intersectional in that manner. But for white men in particular, like it's just, they don't even, it doesn't even come into their framework, right? And so my question is always, you know, calling that out, but then afterwards, what does, how do we, how do we do, how do we not fix it? Because is this really fixable? It's a human nature thing. Like how do we, how do we process through this? Um, and that's my eight Enneagram side coming out of like, what next, you know? So, so great. Like, okay. And, and I want to sit in the space of what we've just called out on that centeredness and how black people don't get to have their own narrative. And, you know, it, it goes into everything, the whiteness, like, I mean, fashion, we just, my friend and I we were talking about this of like everything, everything that we talk about in which Black folks have not been able to evolve their fashion outside from whiteness. And so what does it mean that their identity of who they are connects back to certain cultures in Africa? And so I say this about Korean as well. Like we evolve Korean fashion, but it's always connected to this traditional. And white people get to have this fashion sense of which it's like, which decade do they get to choose from which they expand from? Because all of that fashion is is in whiteness narrative, you know what I mean? Whereas, oh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna adjust the little humble Korean traditional dress, like, are we gonna make it a little wider, a little smaller, like narrow, like, oh, are we gonna make it A-line? Like, all of these things to which we don't get to like expand out of that because that defines what Koreanness is and white people, they don't, they don't have that limitation, right? And so that this is the thing that I wanna talk about, about like the reason the centeredness exists is because all the foundation that we've established at this point is all based on European, American thought process, systems, culture, taste, fashion, music, et cetera, all these things. And what I love that Black people are doing is they're defining and, and, and breaking free of that because you have all done the decades harder work of which you've tried to break free from that narrative. But I'm, I'm just asking in all the different people groups that we have what does that mean that we don't even have to comply or submit or fall under this white narrative this white centeredness this white foundation that we're all like scrambling to try to fit into or yeah. separate from can i speak to that just a little bit tamisha i know tamisha i know tamisha you got it you got it just one second i don't think it is a human response i think it is a selfish response i think it is a very self-centered response and i think it, it's been modeled so much in dominant culture that we maybe have assumed that it's normative, but I don't think that that is how this thing is meant to go. And I see too many cultures in society where it is not centered on the individual or centered on the self and centered on one person's ego, one person's power, and one person's privilege. And so I think in our own ethnic communities, not to be comparative, but they should stand apart. And they're 
it, they don't stand apart to be a critique to white culture, but they stand apart because I really do believe that God fundamentally created culture and cultures. And a lot of that happened before the right? But I think what's happened is that in American society, we have, you know, whiteness that sort of subsumes and sort of infiltrates every single thing. So it, it makes it, it makes it really difficult to imagine a world that is not individualistic, self-centered, unfair, right? But I do think that that is the work of the kingdom. Then you start talking about the kingdom. And when you get your kingdom constructs only from like white evangelicalism, then it's problematic. I mean, I think about even the different forms of democracy. Like we have a tendency to believe that if you just vote, then that means that you've spoken your piece. But there are some societies, and I'm gonna, I'm thinking specifically of um, of a town in Uganda, where my church, that is predominantly, it's it was predominantly black, white, and Latino, wanted to come and do some mission work. So they asked the people, they didn't ask the leader of the town, they asked the people of the town, are they welcomed? And the people of the town could not agree. And so we were not allowed to stay there overnight. We could come during the day and we could leave uh, at night. And that was the concession that was made. So the issue really is, if we do not agree, then we don't move forward with what the original plan is, right? So when you start hearing those kinds of conceptions, when you start hearing, then you start imagining, then you start seeing, and it opens up this entire world that is subversive, and it's not just an alternate to what is. Um, it is just simply often better than what was. Sorry about that, Tam. You got it. You got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, what's interesting is the comment about like how fashion and art in particular, how we have been... I don't, I don't agree that we've been in this limited space and not being able to create outside and then whiteness has had this space where they can have this unexpanded. I think on the surface, yes. But when you look at a lot of the movements, especially artistically, like musically, think about rock and roll and jazz and blues and all of these things. These were expressions, particularly of the black community. And so it's interesting to see how Whiteness has this privilege of we can do everything we want and we're expanded, but it also has this small mindedness of, but I got to go borrow from these people and I got to go take credit from over here and I got to go take this. And it's almost like this sense of whiteness is this assume it, it takes in culture into its nothingness. It's like the eye of a hurricane. Like, yes, it's like all of this activity going around it and in the middle it's calm. There's nothing really there, but it borrows from all of the activity around it and it assumes it in its own credit and takes its own privilege and credit over it. And so, and I'm not just talking about people who say, white culture has created, no, no. When you think about the concept of even um, European cultures that have been subsumed into whiteness. Yeah, because we're not talking about we're ethnic cultures, about, we're talking about whiteness, right? Right, whiteness that has subsumed. So there is, so it is assumed it into its nothingness and has created it. And it, so it lives off of the activity of those it oppresses and marginalizes, takes credit for it and reclaims its power. So on the surface, it feels like it's this expansive visionary of things, but really there aren't people in the background. It's a mirage. There aren't people in the background that are really subsuming that power. It, it, it lives off of the thing that it oppresses. So I don't want us to get confused into thinking that has this 
expansive creativity. It can only borrow from the expansive creativity that has been made from people and marginalizations of color. And when we begin to believe and understand that, then we can begin to realize that the way in which we think about, like even when you, you talked about um, the traditional Korean dress and shifts in fashion is like, I'm gonna move the neck here or here. Well, shifts in fashion as it pertains to whiteness is let's borrow that pattern of that Korean dress and make it in a whole different style and say that we are innovative and that we have done these things. What? Cultural appropriation? We're just trying to appreciate the culture by ripping apart the pattern and using patterns that have meaning for no meaning at all just because we think it's cute. We're appreciating it. So do you see what I mean? Like if we totally. fall into the narrative of this nothingness taking credit, then right. we feel limited. But when we think about it in the sense of like, no, you're not gonna take my creativity and my innovation to be subsumed into your nothingness for you to over it. Then that totally. goes in ways in which we see that artists and people of faith have, and people of color have always been subversive. Totally. And I think what my issue is, I think what I was trying to driving point was in order to separate from that nothingness, in order to reclaim and find our identity, like, I think that's what my disturbance is. You know what I'm saying? Like, and then we, because we need to separate that, because I fully agree with what you're saying, the whiteness consumes that and then takes on, I mean, it's the ultimate plagiarism of all centuries, right? Like just over plagiarism over centuries and centuries. And so in order to like reclaim that now and like say, well, this is, this is from my culture. This is from your culture. This is Italian culture or whatever. Like there needs to be an understanding of that. But then I, I think what my frustration is, is in the, in the discovery of what that is, there's this element that then we need to understand and process through how we're not limited to just that, because I think we are conscientious of the plagiarism that has existed, or at least on my end individual, because I'm like analyzing this. Like, I just, I don't want it to be now credited of like, oh, white people saying, well, you guys are just following whatever, you know, this is because you are, you know, you're doing, you're copying this into Korean dress. And you know what I'm saying? Like, this is my frustration of like, as we're dismantling that whiteness, like, and we're trying to reclaim our, our, who we are. And maybe I'm saying this more from Koreanness because of the fact that we've been occupied for 150 some years, you know? And so now we're trying to re-understand what we are and Westernization has just infiltrated us disgustingly. So, I mean, it could be from my own personal frustration of my own people group of trying to understand who we are because we have Japanese influence and Chinese influence and we haven't really been able to understand what that means and we're trying to fight through that. So, I mean, part of it could be, could be my frustration on that, but I fully agree with you, Tamisha, that like the nothing that it's like the never ending story of the nothingness just consuming everything, right? So I, I think for me, I just, I feel frustrated that like, oh, this is Korean dress. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Like, that's just fantastic that that's apparently all that Korean dress is defined as is just this one like little thing, you know what I mean? Like that's where my frustration lies. Mm -hmm. We're stinking white people have had centuries now of expressions of art, even if it's stolen, like that they get to name and like, we're limited to this one little thing. Like we can't get out of that 14th century Korean tradition. Like that's my frustration. I hear you. I hear it. And and I this is where I take a play like a page out of Auntie Maxine's playbook and I go reclaiming my time, right? And so reclaiming my time means I have to center on me. I have to center on 
my story, I have to center on what must come creatively or subversively from me to engage the world so that I can push back enough, not only for myself, but for my daughter, for my nieces, right? So that we can breathe and we can walk around a bit more freely and a bit more proudly and honestly, a bit more humanly, right? It's almost like we're not even allowed to feel and be um, and just exist in the world without having to explain or having to couch or having to surrender to some sort of notion that's just not even ours. So I hear you. And, and Auntie Maxine, if she was here, reclaim your time, baby. Reclaim your dress. Reclaim it all, right? <laughs> and I, I'm so grateful for that woman these days. Well, this is, woo, this is powerful. I've just been sitting back and listening because this is exactly, I think, what I the show is, is wanted to do. And I think this is an ongoing conversation that, you know, we need to have because there's so many layers to this, as you all have beautifully um, have said on that. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I want to be obviously mindful of our time and, and all that good stuff. I wanted to summarize a uh, well not even something i'm just gonna read it it's uh austin channing i mean i think everybody here knows who austin is uh she's on twitter and with uh, her thing went like viral and she said it this was on the same night she said you can thank black women by supporting black women pay us vote with us hire us read our writing fund our projects and ministries vote us into office purchase from our businesses amplify us stand against racism and sexism um, and I just thought that was poignant, you know, in, in regards to just even the conversation that we're having uh, right now. Uh, any final thoughts from folks here as we're thinking about moving forward and uh, trying to push ahead? Our Venmo uh, at is going to be in the story notes, uh, along with some of the business ideas and the things we're going to be doing. If you're serious about what that tweet said, you know. Hit us up. There are people, actual women, who actually need your money and your support. So I think that was the perfect way to end. I'm just saying, you know, don't listen to it and be like, amen, amen, I share all the things and then going about your business. Actually follow suit, follow direction. <laughs> yes, yes. And don't steal our ideas. Give us credit for it. You know, don't steal our ideas and show up at the next conference or write the next tweet or post and you know have your entire community give you kudos without giving credit i hope you can't sleep if you do that like i really hope all your technology <laughs> fails and you're just in the boondocks and you just have to now pray in order to get through yeah yeah i i think also looking for opportunities to give women platforms so that they can bring a fuller picture not just of the world but also of who god is Hmm. Um, there is something in my view of God that is impoverished without Irene's understanding of who Christ is, Tamisha's understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, and my conception of who the Father is, having grown up with the Father, right, in the home. Hmm. Hmm. And so there's this part of me that says, don't just wake up, but stay awake, remain vigilant, and look for opportunities to put people forward that really do need to come forward in this day and in this time because they see straight and because they are not confused and because they really are the people who will identify not just the crumbling foundation, but the way to shore up or to bulldoze this foundation so that other people don't get pulled under um, the weight of a collapsing building. 
maybe it is time to retire the term evangelical, but maybe it's even more time to show up in the world that you live in and actually be just and be bold and dare to say that you know Christ would indeed say. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that's me. And yes, I'm going to have all of the handles. If you're looking for me on Twitter, it's the other Latina. If you're looking <laughs> for me on the other Latina, that's it. It's the other Latina. Um, and uh, you'll find me. And when you find me, might you enjoy, but might you also invite me someplace to do something in 2018? There it is. And pay me. <laughs> That's right. Amen. To Amen. me, to that. Tamisha is single. Tamisha is single. I'm single, but I'm dating somebody because I know people out there wondering, these women out here now, are they single? Are they dating people? I am single, but I'm dating somebody, so I'm not really single. And he's cute, too. <laughs> and I love him. <laughs> I hear that. People not trying to be single in 2018. They're trying to get married. And, and one of us is going to happen for because he's sitting here looking at me like I'm crazy as I say this. So uh, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> Irene? I, I want to challenge men to do the hard work of introspectively understanding and dismantling patriarchy in, in their mental model. Um, and it's going to be hard work because you're, you're, you're examining structures that you've grown up with and questioning things that are cherishing to you and sentimental and memorable. And I, I understand that it would be painful, you know, to begin seeing truth. Um, but it's not going to take away from who you are because Christ Jesus promises us that it, it will actually quadruple and triple like, the fulfillment of who you are in your personhood. I want to challenge you. My husband and I have been watching Breaking Bad again, and he mm. has been enjoying it so much because I'm watching it from a woman's perspective and asking questions and examining and breaking down conversations that are happening, be, you know, from a woman's perspective and seeing the relationship that, you know, Walter White has with his wife from a woman's perspective, like enjoyable to really dissect all of that um, because my husband's awesome and he does the hard work of wanting to understand and go deeper and do the hard work of, of dismantling systems um, even within himself. And for women, um, I say this as a victim, I just, you're not alone. And I want to encourage you. I know that the reality is disgusting and horrible, but fuck them. Let's grow from the pain that we experience and the violation. Um, and let's, let's do the hard work in, within ourselves. You know, absolutely, I should not have been raped. But from that, have I grown powerful to, you know, take a sledgehammer and push forward and break down walls and barriers? Absolutely. Because fuck them. They're not going to, they're not going to break me and they're not going to bring me down. Nothing of it. I'm going to take that pain. I'm going to take that violation and I'm going to make it a strength and wield it for power. Um, and so victims, I want to encourage you, um, even through the pain that I want to give you hope that you, you and I, and all the women, we're going to survive this because that's what we do because we're awesome. Um, and so I just want to encourage that. Hmm. Well, I thank each and every one of you. Um, this is a conversation I think that needs to continue happening. Hopefully we can get some of this into graduate schools, especially seminaries that are training the next quote unquote generation of 
pastors, right? But thank you so much for each of you for coming on and making time uh, for this. And for those of you listening, um, again, subscribe, like us. This is another thing, you know, hey, this is a person of color podcast. You know, we're talking about, you know, issues that are of concern to people of color and those who are like white conscious and, you know, want to be allies and whatnot. Uh, we're on iTunes, Google Stitcher, the whole nine. I will put all these notes, including these, some of these tweets that I have put out there and the Sean Hannity link in the show notes. And so whitehodgepodcast.com, uh, you can go there and get all the, the uh, the uh, show notes if you are listening to this like on iTunes or another um, podcast carrier of your choice but uh, ladies thank you so much you're welcome it's been a pleasure thank you I love you all so much